Welcome to the Filling the Pearl podcast. My name is Greg Ashman, and my guest for this episode is Paul Ayres, Emeritus Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of New South Wales. Welcome, Paul. Uh, good afternoon, Greg. How are you? Not bad at all, apart from being locked up. Yeah, you've had... Not, uh, not locked up, not because of crimes, but because of uh, COVID. I didn't check with you before we started this podcast whether I pronounced your surname correctly. Is that how you yeah, say it? Correct. Yeah. Yep. Good. Because I normally do that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was a bit of an oversight. Okay, so... Um, you're obviously Emeritus Professor of Educational Psychology, University of New South Wales. So that's for, for those that um, are following the story a little bit. That's where John Sweller is also Emeritus Professor. That's where I'm doing my PhD under Sweller and um, Slava Kalyuga. Um, so uh, this is a little little bit in-house, this, uh, this particular podcast. And Paul has a, a long track record in cognitive load theory. Um, so um, that's probably what we're going to centre on talking, but we might have a bit of a chance to discuss the uh, very poor proposals for the maths and science curriculum in Australia. We might get to that towards the end. So what I like to do, Paul, with guests on this podcast, the first thing I like to do is ask them a little bit of a story. How did they get to where they are today? How did you, what's the route from, um, you know, your school uh, days to becoming a professor at the University of New South Wales? Uh, well, it's, <laughs> it's a long journey. I moved 12,000 miles for a start, so I guess so. it's been quite a long journey. Uh, I left school, I did an honours degree in mathematics. I specialised in quantum mechanics, so Excellent. I've got a kind of applied math background, although the, <laughs> the applications are probably a little bit different to <laughs> normal ones, but... Uh, uh, I sort of travelled the world for a few years after I graduated. I then did a teacher training degree or one-year postgraduate degree, became a teacher. So I was a teacher in England in, in maths and also a bit of physics and also science, which I didn't really like at all. But uh, uh, I also taught computing, which I sort of uh, learned as I went. Then I emigrated to Australia and uh, I worked for Australia Post for the first three years here as a, a data analyst. And then the kind of school teaching sort of came calling again. So I became a school teacher. And when I was, uh, I got interested in learning, <laughs> being a school teacher, should be obvious, but in terms of the actual cognitive processes that were going on, in terms of how people memorize information and uh, applied it, etc. So. I then, uh, this was in about 1983, started to look around to do a kind of uh, graduate degree in uh, education or educational psychology or something like that. And looking around the various universities in Sydney, I found a fellow, a young fellow called John Sweller, who was doing this course called Human Problem Solving. So I thought, hmm, that's the place for me because I was very interested in problem solving and the actual uh, cognitive processes going to problem solving. So I uh, applied to do a, a master's by research at UNSW and John Sweller became my supervisor. And then from there, I sort of uh, graduated to uh, a PhD and I completed a PhD in 1987. So 
uh, do you want more of my story or is that <laughs> well you ended up you ended yeah. up working um in 2000 you joined the university of new south Wales because you went to a western yeah. sydney university first is that right yeah. yeah i continued as a school teacher i was a school teacher when i was doing my uh, research and you would know being a school teacher uh, where you see students every day is actually quite a good background for actually completing research into learning, thinking, problem solving, etc., or generally education. Yeah. So I continued to be a, a school teacher for seven years after I completed my PhD, and then I went to the University of Western Sydney as a maths ed lecturer. So, and then after a few years there, I managed to get the kind of dream job that I wanted, and that was back at UNSW working with Sweller and Chandler and Kaluga, et cetera. So, do you think? I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got a physics background, so, so I did physics at university. Um, you got a physics background. Slava's got a, a physics background. I'm wondering is, if there's some sort of pattern here in that. Um, so, educational psychology, I wouldn't say it's physics, it's not like the, one of the hard sciences, but it's a little bit harder, a science, say, than yep. um, your typical education, faculty, sociology-based research. Do you think that, that we, get a, we get drawn into this area a little bit because of our backgrounds? Uh, I've never really thought about that. <laughs> okay. I think Slava just wanted to get out of Russia. <laughs> Which is a which is a fair point. Um, now, one of the, one yeah, of the... I, I mean, like I would never consider myself a physicist. I was good at solving equations, you know, like yeah. Maxwell's equations, relativity equations, and things like that. I wasn't particularly good at understanding what was going on, but uh, so I would I would never be a physicist as such. I'm, yeah, I'm a mathematician. Yes, who became an educational psychologist. So, well, not psychologist, but as in terms of studying psychology. So. Um, yeah, I've never never put that connection together before, other than <laughs> clearly the kind of work we was doing, it really applied to mass problems and physics problems. So I guess it was a natural, you know, and cognitive load theory first started out with worked examples, the idea that it could be applied mainly to mass physics, that type of problem. So there was a connection there. It was only later on that people started doing worked examples in other areas, you know, like the arts or English, et cetera. So. Yeah, Slava's yeah. got that famous one. I, I don't think it's Slava's, actually. I might be making that bit up. But there's one with the Shakespeare plays, isn't there, with the yeah. annotations yeah. between the lines. And that's the, the, the sort of when people say, well, it's worked, worked examples work great for maths, but they don't work for English. It's, oh, have you seen this paper about the Shakespeare plays? Um, now, you started out um, with thinking about Pythagoras' theorem and problems kids had in solving that and that, uh, that, that they could solve it sometimes and, and not others. So it wasn't the issue that they didn't understand Pythagoras' theorem. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, like the classic error in, in user applying Pythagoras' theorem is that, uh, you know, x squared plus y squared equals z squared and kids are quite good at finding the z squared. It's when they have to find the x squared, in other words, transform the equation. And what I started noticing was that students would make mistakes in kind of two or three step problems. So in other words, they could, they could easily uh, show that y squared equals, you know, apply y squared equals z squared minus x squared when it, when it appeared in certain steps within a problem, but when it appeared in other steps, they would get it wrong. So how come, so I started thinking, how come you could get it right in some situations of the problem, but wrong in other situations? 
And of course, the answer I came up with was that, well, when they're finding that first step, this is where they got it wrong. And this is where the kind of area in the problem when the cognitive load was greatest. So they, they weren't making mistakes because they misunderstood how to use Pythagoras' theorem. And this was the same in trigonometry, other trigonometry types of problems, as well as uh, geometry problems. They would get it wrong when the overall cognitive load was greatest. So it's kind of a theory, theoretical aspect of cognitive load that, yeah, you, you know, when cognitive load increases, you will start to uh, have problems with applying your normal knowledge, you know, knowledge that you already have, but you start to lose it when the load increases. And if we talked now, like today, probably, we'd, we'd try and make, we'd, that's almost countable. We'd try and count that and talk about element interactivity if we were doing a paper yeah. on that now, probably, I think. Are you all right? Can you hear me? Paul? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I've got a message coming up. Okay. Saying, <laughs> who is this person? <laughs> no, it didn't. Did it say you're interested? The UNSW no. upload. Okay. Um, yep. So, yeah, I, I'll just just for the people listening, I'll just I'll just let them know. Um, I've I've had a bit of a technical issue at my end, so I'm hotspotting through my phone. So that's probably going to um, uh, damage the audio quality slightly. So I do apologise for that. Um, now the the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, obviously, back in the uh, early days of cognitive load theory, one of the uh, classic uh, effects, which I think people find quite uh, intriguing, is the goal free. Uh, effect, um, particularly because I think um, it, it looks like uh, a kind of open-ended investigation um, and people will look at that and they'll say, but the goal-free effect, when, when students do an open-ended bit of investigation under the conditions of the goal-free effect, uh, they learn more than, than if there's a goal that they're trying to reach. Isn't that an argument for forms of inquiry-based learning where you set the kids free and don't give them a goal and ask them to figure things out? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there are quite a few points here. Yeah. One of them is, is kind of similar to brainstorming when people just shoot out ideas. They're not necessarily trying to solve a problem as such, but they're just generating ideas in a very, very kind of low, low atmosphere. So we just generate ideas. And uh, people like people, cognitive load theory people, like Sweller, et cetera, have often argued that, there's no theory behind brainstorming, that it's just something that works, but there's no kind of real theory behind it, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But with goal-free problems and the kind of research I was involved with back in the 80s was that, uh, and it fits in with the idea that we have this kind of uh, biological problem-solving, we're born with biological problem-solving capabilities. And one of them was the so-called means-ends analysis. And means-ends analysis is when you have a general problem solver and able to work back from a goal. And so a normal problem, like a math problem, it says find X, whatever X, whatever the context is, is that you have a goal and you have to get to it. And if you don't know how to do it, then you, you can only fall back on kind of like general problem solvers. You've got like working backwards. And that creates an awful lot of cognitive load. And so, you know, you may end up ultimately solving the problem, but you won't learn from it because all your kind of mental resources are taken up by solving the problem rather than learning from it. But now what the goal-free problem does 
what goal-free problems do, it takes away the ultimate goal. So in other words, you start generating answers to, you know, if you take a geometry problem where you have to find a certain angle, you, you can generate many angles, which uh, are quite easy to do. And then from that, from that step, which is taking up very little cognitive load, you can then move on to uh, finding the, the, the actual angle that you want. Even though with a goal-free problem, there isn't a, you just find as many as you can. So the, the link there is that, yes, you, you're reducing cognitive load, but you're actually using the general problem solvers that most humans are born with naturally. And you're not creating a kind of uh, a general problem solver uh, that, that generates more cognitive load. So I'm not sure whether that's, uh, I've made that myself clearer, but uh, <laughs> with a goal-free problem, you gen you're generating answers, right? To what you know, you're finding as many things as you can, like the, the length of a side of a, of a triangle or, or an angle or, or whatever. You're just generating that, and the, and from there you can build on that, rather than working backwards from a fixed, a fixed goal, which is two or three or four steps away. So is so, this is this something then we should be doing lots of in maths class, giving goal-free problems for for students to just work out whatever they can? It it works very nicely for what is called transformation problems. Transformation problems is where you're going from one step to another step and, and, and trigonometry and geometry, coordinate geometry, etc., are ideal for that situation. In algebra, it's a bit harder to do. You know, yeah. if you're solving a quadratic equation, you can't exactly start generating too many things. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, there's no diagram. Yeah. So I'll so, work out that bit and I'll work out that bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, it's a bit more kind of domain specific in terms of the type of problems you can use on that. So now, one of the things that you've you've taught, um, I believe, and I might have this wrong, so correct me if I get this wrong. Um, I think you've taught like the human cognitive architecture um, unit at the University of New South Wales. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. So one of the things, um, bear with this just a little bit as I paint paint the picture. Um, the, there's been a bit of a, a book was released recently by a, a, a UK professor, uh, basically casting, well, well, there's one chapter in it which casts down, cast, throws shade on cognitive load theory. And uh, one of his arguments is uh, the mind is not like a computer. Cognitive load theory views the mind as a computer. The mind's not like a computer. Computers have a central processing unit. Um, what would that be? in the mind um, doesn't make any sense, the mind having a central processing unit. Um, and, but I don't think that's how cognitive load theory views the mind. Uh, well, the central processing unit came out of the information age in the 70s, 60s, 70s, et cetera, where that was how they tried to model the human brain was to come up with the idea of this like a computer, you've got, a, you've got an area that stores information, memory, and you've also got parts of the brain that process information uh, and human cognitive architecture did build on Badley's original Badley's model of, you know, you've got a, a, you know, you've got several parts of the memory, you've got working memory, you've got this executive processor, et cetera. So uh, I don't see why that's, it's a model of the brain. When you, when you get into uh, the looking at the brain itself and all the different parts of the brain that we know in different parts of the brain, you know, 
is responsible for certain actions, certain memories, etc., like that. So it, it, you know, it's a, it's been a model. It's, it's a model, not the actual brain itself. So yeah, but I'm the, not sure who this person is. <laughs> but the, I, in your book with um, Slava and John, you actually explicitly reject um, a central processing unit because um, you say. In the, it's like evolution. The way the brain processes information is similar to biological evolution. Biological evolution doesn't have a central processing unit. Um, and so the model, and it is still a model, you write, like it's not, we're not saying this is how the brain literally is, but the model is of something that doesn't have a central processing unit. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that's actually true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whether. It's actually what we, uh, if we actually state that or not, maybe maybe I'm wrong. It's ten years ago since we wrote the book, right? <laughs> but uh, it, there's been several models, and one one of them is Ericsson's model, where we have this uh, long-term working memory. You know, the Baddeley model is quite simple in terms of you know you have two storage systems and an executive uh, function that where the processing takes place and it calls on the two things like that, the two slave systems, one auditory and one visual. Yeah. But uh, and I think Sweller would argue that uh, it, it's all comes through long-term memory. And, and this is where the Ericsson idea, you have, a, you have this other long-term working memory. In other words, when we face with a, some kind of problem or, or or we need to record some information, then we, then we create this part of the, the memory system that deals with the conscious thought of the time. So I'm, uh, it's not exactly my, my area in terms of <laughs> not especially in how the brain works by a long stretch of imagination. <laughs> but there is a, there's a key difference, isn't there? I mean, what we're talking about are models. So no, when anyone proposes any model of the brain, whether it's got a central processing unit or not, or whether it's got um, a, a an executive and slave systems and whatever, no one's saying that that is literally what the brain is made up of. There are bits of the grey matter that you can say this is this bit and this is that bit. We're just using a model and we're saying this model is good as long as it uh, predicts um, the results of various sort of experiments. Yeah, it's a model. Yeah, uh, I mean. There's been an awful lot of the so-called brain sciences going around at the moment. And in terms of, you know, it's very, very important to uh, study the brain itself. And uh, if I can discuss a couple of stories associated with that. One was with Richard Mayer, who you yep. probably heard of. Right? Yep. And uh, I was talking to him about 10 or so years ago, and he said, OK, so we find out that certain parts of the brain light up. So what? Yeah. Right. Uh, and the second second one is, and you, as you would know, that it's been very important to measure cognitive load. If you're enjoying this podcast, then please consider leaving a five star review wherever you get your podcasts. It will help people find the show. Please also share a link on social media. You can find the Filling the Pale blog at fillingthepale.substack.com and the archives at gregashman.wordpress.com. If you like what you see there, please also share on social media. Oh, that was it. You were talking, Mayer, you said Mayer uh, said, so what if different bits of the brain light up? And then you yeah, talked about... Yeah, I mean, about... that may have just been a, th a throwaway line, but I was, yeah. that's always stuck with me. So so what? That, you yeah. know, we can, we can 
we can do these various scans. We can use EEGs and all, all sorts of various things and uh, come up with, you know, pictures. Uh, but interestingly, you know, one of the great kind of controversies of cognitive load theory is measuring cognitive load itself. Yeah. And Fred Pass came up with in the, about 1992, was basically you just have a subjective measure on a, on a scale of one to nine or one to seven, whatever, saying, well, how difficult did you find that problem? How easy was it that to learn? Or how much effort, how much mental effort? And this was based on kind of uh, early stuff into uh, human computer interactions where measuring workload is very, very important, not just in, the, in learning, but for, for pilots, for people who have been uh, very, very, let's say, uh, serious jobs where yeah. mental workload is, is important. So anyway, in the last six months, I've been involved with a study with Fred, with Fred Pass and Jeroen van Merenboer in the Netherlands, and we've been comparing physiological measures, the various measures, with subjective measures. Yeah. And what we found was that the subjective measures were actually better than actual measures of the brain. Ah. <laughs> in other words alpha waves beta waves gamma waves and all the various ways that you can signals that the brain gives out under various eegs and similar types of uh, technology and scans is actually uh, less accurate than asking someone how they felt about it <laughs> well that's that's <laughs> well, interesting it's, yeah it's very interesting but it's uh, so that kind of brain and learning and problem solving is still quite a quite a long way away from each other. Even this one example, where you know we we looked at all these studies and Fred's simple scale of how difficult or how much mental effort did you was a better measure of cognitive load than measuring alpha waves in the brain. So. Anyway, that's not to say that the other stuff is no good. No. It just means, it, it, if anything, it just shows, well, you need a combination of all the different things to get the best result. But, but for, for dismiss someone's reflection of what they're doing compared with an actual measure of the signals in the brain is, is you know, it wasn't as expected, so. No, it is interesting. I've heard this before. There's a guy, um, oh, what's his name? No, oh, it doesn't it's lost me. But I argued very cogently that that really neuroscience is a very long way from having any uh, implications for um, uh, education, because uh, just like my mayor said, you know, if you find out that something happens towards the back of the brain or, or yeah. it doesn't. What does that what are the instructional implications of that? I mean, what really matters is whether the, the student can then retrieve that information, do something with it, apply it. And that doesn't matter really unless we've got some very clear theory that if we see it in this part of the brain it has these instructional applica uh, implications then it doesn't really matter well the different parts of the brain are very important there's a classical uh, how they found out i think about short-term memory or long-term memory going back is when this unfortunate guy got some accident had some industrial accident where he's got some kind of uh, metal rod through his brain and uh what he, what the people found out that he'd lost his short-term memory mm. or long-term memory. I can't remember myself because yeah. <laughs> it's a while since I kind of 
remember that research, but yeah, that was before scans or anything like that. That was just simply this guy had a terrible accident and metal rod through part of his brain and it affected one, one memory system, but not the other. So the different parts of the brain are very important, but using those, you know, using those kind of measures at the moment is a, there's a long way disconnect between that and education. So. Um, now, while we're on the brain, you've done some work on mirror neurons and a question that teachers would be interested in, I know because they've asked me in the past uh, and it's something yeah. that often comes up in PD. Say I've got a worked example on a sheet of paper and this is your classic worked example experiment. I'll provide a student with a worked example and they study the worked example and then they try and replicate it themselves. Um, compare that with a teacher standing at the front of the class and actually going through the worked example, doing it in real time. So and one step at a time, not the whole thing displayed at once. Um, now, I've um, people have asked me about this in the past. I said, well, there's a little bit from Mayer's cognitive um, theory of multimedia learning that suggests that animated agents uh, are more yeah. effective than than not could you expand a little bit on 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 the research around that well the mirror neuron system uh is closely linked to observational learning i we can we can watch somebody doing something and mimic it and people have you know, theorize that it, we have these things called the mirror neuron system enables us to do that. Uh, we got interested in it, myself and Fred Pass got interested in it when we were doing uh, studies in animation. And, you know, animation has been very controversial. The, the idea is that animation should be fantastic teaching aid. In other words, we, you can show the very large or the very small, you can show motion, all those things, yeah. But often it's it's no better than pages in a book yeah. for, for a number of reasons. But it, it often depends on what the task is. Now you can I can touch my nose, right? <laughs> and I can say to you, do what? Copy me, and you can do it, right? Yeah. And that's mimicking. Yeah. And so uh, there's a whole kind of area out there where observational learning works fine for physical movements human movements we're very very good at it and and this can go down to doing lego tasks uh riding a bicycle you know doing some kind of uh physical uh, first aid etc now copying someone doing a formula <laughs> Is, is slightly different. You can yeah. copy the writing, it's easy to copy writing, but it doesn't necessarily come with the understanding. Now, what you were talking about in terms of seeing, seeing someone write a, a worked example, this taps into another thing, which is called embodied cognition. Yeah. And so the answer to that is that it, it's, it's not a mirror neuron thing, although you have to be able to recognize, you know, for some actions and some learning tasks you have to recognize what's going on there but it's it's in terms of you know we have a body mind environment connection and this is a whole idea of embodied learning so when you when you read a worked example you're just reading a worked example yes which can obviously help you learn but if someone's writing out that worked example then you then you're feeding into a more embodied cognition effect which is 
is it seems to the argument is that that's a stronger fault than just watching watching that you know reading the actual writing down of the worked example so uh, I think in this in the mayor experiments that you talked about I think it was that you had a teacher and you had a whole teacher you had no teacher and you had just a teaching hand yeah I think that was the experiment and that just the hand was best oh I, I believe again it's not something I read every day, but uh, I have, a, I have a, a vaguish memory of that. And, and why the hand works is because when you have the whole body, you can bring in other bits of information that you're not, uh, you know, cloudy the situation, you look at the whole person. Whereas the hand is, right? And the yeah. hand is the writing instrument. So that has a, seemed to have a stronger embodied cognition effect than the whole person or no person. So, yes, it's an embodied cognition effect, which is not necessarily a mirror neuron effect, as far as I, I know. So, but yes, it, uh, mimicking it, in, and uh, there's a whole uh, set of, there's a whole kind of field of study out there about uh, mimicking. Okay. And, you know, uh, you know, you can mimic mass formula and stuff with your hands. Yeah, I've done some experiments where, Students have learned to uh, foreign language uh, to uh, learn terms in foreign language just by mimicking the actual process of writing Persian, for example. Yeah, uh, and so the, the the mimicking thing connected to the embodied this kind of embodied cognition force yep. is quite a powerful thing. So, in terms of your answer, in terms of should we be writing things down, uh, I would say well, if you. Is it better to see a video of someone, the formula appearing, or the, or, or of a, a disembodied writing the formula? And, and the, the hand, under some circumstances, right, is important, but you've got other factors. In a classroom situation, a teacher would be doing that, and you'd see the teacher, you'd see the hand, the formula would be the word, but you've also got the conversation, so you have the question and answers and all that stuff. So you have a probably stronger effect even by you know actually uh and interactivity yeah the interactivity the, the, the way it plays out is you have like you've got a conscientious teacher and they want to prepare their lesson and often these days they're on powerpoint slides and so they don't want to be working out how to do a problem in the moment so they put the whole series of steps on the powerpoint slides and then they'll say to me well if I just display that slide, is there something less about that than if I actually work through it all live in front of the students? And my answer is have the thing prepared at the side so you know what you're doing, so in case you make, you know, so you don't make a mistake. But um, my understanding of it is it's probably still a little bit better for you to work through it in front of the students rather than just display the whole um, set of solution steps. I don't know whether that's uh, good advice or not. I, I think so. I mean, if I think back to my teaching days and, uh, you know, especially extension two maths here in New South Wales or Oxbridge exams in, in England, et cetera, right, that you would have to, uh, a kid would ask you, well, is a problem, solve it, right? And you, yeah. and you can't solve it straight away. Yeah. And so you have to go through the process step by step of trying to work it out. Uh, and, I, and I think that's part of the actual, uh, that's a good thing to do. 
provided you can do it at the end, right? Yeah. The, you know, you're setting out your thinking steps and you're calling on the students' thinking steps to also help you do it or for them to do it as well. So you're, you're getting a lot more process information. So, you know, worked examples, bare worked examples is, is one thing, but uh, as you probably know, the, the, there's all sorts of uh, help you can give worked examples by giving process steps. In other words, you explain them. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, 2x plus 3 equals 9, therefore 2x equals 6, if that was correct, x equals 3, but yeah. you explain those steps. So there's a bit, there's, for people who have a fair amount of knowledge, you don't need to do that. But, uh, you know, given the process, explaining the steps is, you know, as well as other kind of techniques such as self-explanations yeah. and stuff. So it's all interlinked. There's, there's a... Probably a, there's no such thing as the best solution, the best method, but you've got the best methods for certain situations, I think. So, yeah. so seeing somebody go through on the blackboard or whiteboard or on the computer, or whatever, you know, step by step solution to a problem with explanations is probably better than just reading it on a piece of paper without explanations for yeah. many students with more knowledge not necessary <laughs> yeah no well their expertise reversal is is important and i think that's another thing that teachers struggle with is that that gradual release of response i mean it's hard particularly when you've got a class with which you always do with with various levels of expertise within yeah. the students how you gradually let go from fully guided to independent is 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 a bit of an art form which we're all struggling with all the time absolutely yes um now um one of the 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 there was a big debate um which I'm going to turn to because it's it's sort of resurfaced recently in the context of changes to the Australian curriculum. But this debate goes back to uh, probably 2006 and the publication of uh, Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Doesn't Work by Paul Kirshner, John Sweller and Richard Clark. Um, yep. th there was a it was a basically it was a paper um, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but probably for the people listening to the podcast, uh, it was a paper um, uh, that was saying that um, pro uh, approaches to teaching such as inquiry learning or constructivist approaches, and all these words are debated and contested, and people uh, like Mayer has written a lot about how there's no such thing as constructivist teaching. It's a theory of learning, not theory of teaching. But anyway, these less guided forms of instruction where students are expected to figure something out for themselves are not effective. And then there was a debate. Um, there was papers published disagreeing with that position. There was a debate at the AERA conference in 2007. There was a book, Constructivist Instruction, Success or Failure. Um, and to my mind, um, in the field of educational psychology, at least, um, that sort of drew a line under the whole debate. And over the last 10 years, certainly my PhD research, there aren't many people now in that field who are, who are advocating full-on inquiry learning like they were in the, the 2000s. So for, for me, the, 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 the contention that I've been wrestling with is people who say a little bit of open-ended um, problem solving prior to explicit instruction has some benefits. And so my paper was uh, exploring that. Um, but um, 
Is that a, first of all, do you think that's a fair characterization that that's, that's kind of has been resolved pretty much within the field of educational psychology? Or, or would, you, would you disagree with that and say that within the field, the debate is still raging? Well, people in educational psychology would have all sorts of different opinions. People <laughs> in education have all sorts of different opinions. Yeah. Uh, cognitive psychologists would have different opinions. And uh, I would say, I mean, the debate started in the 70s. Um, yeah. in, in the 80s. And uh, when I when I used to read about the new curriculum, I'm thinking they, they've gone back 40 years in terms yeah. of what their arguments are and stuff yeah. like that. So, uh, uh, I mean, I never understood what radical constructivism was because it was because <laughs> I didn't have a philosophy background. Yeah, <laughs> I seem to I failed to get I failed to get philosophy background in my uh, apart from Socrates, maybe in my education and all, all, all they seem to be saying was that uh, any kind of telling students anything is wrong and the only way you can learn is in a, is part of a is part of a group and and the catchphrase is that what well, everyone make you know everyone you know What's the, what's the expression the catchphrase? I can't even remember what the catchphrase is. It's the, the phrase that you know everyone kind of makes up their own meaning of things. Yes, of course you do. There's you're in your there's no one else inside your head. The only thing that you know, goes inside your head is the ideas from other people and other things that you work out, etc. So this idea that we you know, we we generate our own learning, of course we do, right? Except that other people help us do it. Virtually everything we learn at school, university comes from somebody else. There's, you know, that's almost like one of the first rules of cognitive load theory is that, yes, we learn from other people. We borrow information from other people. We don't make it up ourselves because we're incapable of doing that, except if you're, you know, the Da Vinci or Einstein, et cetera, Heisenberg. You, you just, you know, we learn everything from other people, from books, which other yeah. people wrote. So, so uh, the, the constructivism is from the radical constructivism of the 80s. It, it, it's kind of dampened down a little bit. And, you know, it's kind of like more of, I, I mean, I still don't know what it is in terms of what people, th you know, argue what it is in terms of, well, you know, well, we, we construct our own meaning and therefore, you know, we have to, we have to construct our own meaning. Teachers are facilitators. You know, students, you know, have complete autonomy to decide whether they want to go to school or not. I mean, have you heard the same, do you remember the famous book, The Summerhill? Was it The Summerhill Experiment? Yes. You know, there's been similar ones where people go to school and they decide what they're going to do, whether they're going to have mass or go rowing or something or collect butterflies, that kind of thing. So, so uh, no, it's still there. I, I don't think it's ever been resolved. You know, the, you know, most of it's social constructivism these days, and that is that, uh, you know, the best learning takes place in groups, problem solving. I, mean, I would say all, most mass educators rather than mass educations or, or cognitive or people who study educational psychology, you know, don't necessarily believe that, but the mass educators seem to believe that. So the people teaching... And, um, trainee teachers about how to teach maths that's a that's still a strong philosophy the sort of social constructivism i would imagine so yes yeah. all you got to do is look, you all you got to do is look at uh, the 
the people on education, uh, you know, the staff, and you know what? Just look at their research. Now, there's very little that would be empirical in terms of comparing one randomized group with another randomized group. No, most of it and, is things like I, I, I know what effective maths teaching looks like. I am going to train these uh, trainee teachers to deliver it. Um, oh, according to my rubric, they delivered it more effectively once I'd trained them. Therefore, th th I'm writing that up, and this is my research. Yeah. Um, uh, a classic example of this whole, I mean, this comes around to group work and collaboration. Yes, you know, you can get three or four expert people together and they can solve a problem. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's how the world works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You get three or four 11 year olds in a class, you know, to solve a problem. And yes, they can solve a problem. And, and they can often solve a problem better than certain individuals, but not all individuals, of course. Uh, and to highlight that, this, I don't know if you heard of Enda Retnawati, right, as an Indonesian student of mine, right? She, yep. she did some studies comparing uh, people who worked in groups. You see, all the, all the collaboration stuff and all the problem-solving stuff, they've never compared it. They've compared it. They may have compared it with individuals learning alone, right? But they've never compared it with a good form of learning, like worked examples. Yeah. And what she did, she, she looked at learning from worked examples in groups and individuals. And individuals could learn from worked examples better than learning from problem solving <laughs> yeah so this idea that working working in groups or working collaboratively in a problem solving environment leads to better learning is is not true because you know you can give students worked examples and work alone and they will they will learn better than where problem solving where group collaborations work better is if you have someone trying to work Working on a problem alone is not as good as working on a problem with groups because groups can bring more bits of knowledge together. So the whole social constructivism is, you know, I remember being not. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, so I was going to say I remember being quite impressed with um, the collaborative problem-solving research in the 1980s when I, when I first started reading about it all and and blogging and. And you see, there's this quite um, Robert Slavin, uh, who recently passed. He he did a lot of work on that, and you can read his stuff. And it's pretty scientific looking. And well, it is scientific. There's no doubt about it. The proper controlled trials. And but when you look at the comparison condition, it's exactly that point that you've just raised. Um, most of the time, the alternative to collaborative working is kids working independently on worksheets, which I don't think anyone in education would put forward as an optimal, uh, optimal model, whatever side of the, the, the great debate you're on. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like other types of research into collaboration. I mean, look, I, I, collaboration has, has a role in yeah. schools. There's no doubt about that. I'm not, I'm not against it at all, but it, it's not the bee's knees, so to speak. <laughs> and, you know, you can... Other types of research is, well, they undergo a, a group problem solving and they had asked them afterwards how they, if they enjoyed it. Yeah, oh yeah, great, yeah, loved it, right? 
as yeah. opposed to not loving it. Right? <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of various studies that have been done into working in groups, collaboration, right? And are there my friends in the Netherlands, Fred Pass, etc. Well, I argue Paul Kirchner that well, a lot of it is really not properly controlled experiments, and they're not. And from my point of view, they're not comparing it with a with a strategy that's superior, like worked examples. Yeah. Now, so, going back to your now, point. No, sorry, just come. Yeah, if so, I can just interrupt you. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was reading it. I don't. I'm not sure it's a national curriculum. But uh, I think it may have been the uh, master's and they were they in that review they were recommending you know project based learning and stuff like that yeah project based learning and, and kids do more projects now projects have a role but pro problem based learning is you know works can work in medical schools where you've got students who've got twenty two years of knowledge of various things, but in terms of uh, some school children, it's not going to be that successful. <laughs> no, project-based learning, it's a real, it's a real trend as well. People think it's, this is it, people think it's supported by research evidence as well. They'll, they'll say, we're going to move over to do more project-based learning in, I don't know, year eight, because we think it's supported by the evidence, it's groundbreaking blah 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 and they don't realize two things one there isn't that body of evidence that they think there is and they're also yeah. significantly they don't realize it's been tried quite a number of times before um and this is because the name keeps changing what what you're calling it keeps changing so you can't get a handle on what the thing is um just going back to your point about um looking at what people what 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 education researchers tend to research maths education researchers and what they tend to research i think this is fundamental to our the the situation that we find ourselves in so for those who are not in australia who are listening to this podcast um the context is that acara which is the body that's responsible for the australian curriculum they have a duty to periodically review the curriculum and they've come up with some draft um changes to the curriculum uh, and the consultation period on those the, those draft changes ended yesterday and a number of us have been making quite a lot of noise about these because they seem to be quite regressive so for instance in the science curriculum every science understanding dot point now start to either explore or investigate because they want to promote inquiry learning uh, and not quite as radical in the maths curriculum, but still enough um, there to, to cause worry about the promotion of problem-based learning. But you think, well, what I think is if you're a CARA, uh, who do you go to uh, to review your maths curriculum who is not going to tell you to do that stuff because it's ubiquitous in maths education? Like any, any expert, any notional mm. expert in maths education that you go to that's what they're going to tell you to do, even though it conflicts yep. with the evidence. Yes, it's a great <laughs> worry. <laughs> so what do we do about it, Paul? Well, I, I think the process they have in play at the moment for these reviews, now typically what, what happens, you know, you, you have the Gonski 
version two review yeah. a few years ago. And in New South Wales, we've had the Masters ACER review, right? Yeah. And they're all really flash-looking documents and with very, very strong recommendations. They talk about, you know, 21st century skills, schools, skills, and how this is going to be the ultimate world-class. Hmm? Yeah. And... And then you read their reviews and you read the actual report and, and they are, you know, I would fail it as a master's essay. That master's not as in Jeff Masters, no. who not do one of them, but as in a master's, a master's degree. Yeah. Uh, because A, often they never report the kind of questions they ask. They don't report them. No. They, they don't not even say how they've analysed it. And when yeah. they analyse it, it's all lumped together. Yeah. And they say, well, 70% of people agreed with, you know, there has to be more problem solving. So I'm making this, this particular point up. Yeah. But who? They never differentiate between French teachers, English teachers, maths teachers, PE teachers, whatever, right? They never, they never differentiate between teachers of five-year-olds and teachers of 18-year-olds. So you never get a perspective of who's saying what. And outcome these recommendations, and 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 they will often use bits and bits of, you know, so-called research because it's always evidence-based. Now, whenever I read these, I would think they've never ever gone to any evidence, <laughs> other than obscure little uh, references to, you know, some researchers or some teachers who have, when I say teachers in universities, who have come up with this particular idea. So I think the whole process is wrong. Uh, I, I was involved with uh, a study. This was back in the, it would have been the 90s. And what they did was that New South Wales syllabus, would, I mean, this is kind of talk about the world goes round and round. They were, they were thinking of bringing in projects. Yeah. And this was in the, in the 90s, and it's been highly recommended that there'd be a lot of projects work, right? And uh, the inspector of mathematics, uh, Peter Rosgood, uh, he came up with this idea that as well, let's get some evidence on this. So I invited John Sweller and myself to come up with 20 articles and then two people from Sydney University to come up with a kind of counter idea about mm. the evidence in projects, right? And... We basically said, well, yes, well, there's some interest in projects, but projects tend to uh, ask a lot more on teachers and they tend to be, uh, can be done, the, the higher the stakes goes up, they can be done by tutors or parents and peers and all yep. sorts of shady, shady. <laughs> they but, privilege the privileged. Basically, we, we thought our idea was safely said, you know, never do this. And their idea and their references they come up, which we then critiqued, was, you know, again, it was not uh, what we would consider scientific research. No. And so they, they didn't do it. Well, so you saw them <laughs> that off. Was 25 years, that was 25 years ago. So a process like that where... You know, yes, it has to go out to all the stakeholders to see what they do. But if it goes out to the stakeholders, you really do have to have a come up with a proper analysis of it. And, and, and you really have to document who's saying what. 
You know, right. if, if all the if all the year 12 teachers are saying, no, this is a terrible idea, and all the you know grade six teachers saying this is a fantastic idea, then it goes into you know, then maybe it should be in grade six, but not in grade 12, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you, know, you never get that kind of uh, fine-grained analysis of what's going. It's all lumped in. And as we always know, we, as, you, as we all, you know, the, the old adage, if you, if you want to if, never ask someone to do a review if they're going to find something to what you don't want. Yeah, well, exactly. But, but, but people in education, you know, the... the the policymakers in education, they're the victims. I mean, they, they have no idea what to do. So they put it out to the so-called, they think they're experts, right? Yeah. And they come up with these wacky ideas. Well, because they're all wrong, very, aren't they? Very, very dangerous ideas. I've, I've, you know. I've, I've published a, a, a post today, actually, that's relevant to what you were just saying. So um, I've got this group of North American uh, maths teachers who have sort of taken against me um, and they're, they're sort of tweeting yeah. about me on Twitter. And um, and basically the argument is, to summarise, that, you know, I can play this paper um, and uh, to, to support my argument, but there's always a paper someone else can play to uh, refute it that says the opposite, and it's this is a tiresome game. And my point is, well, you can think of it that way if you want, but the two points. First of all, if that's what you truly believe, how can you be promoting any particular approach to teaching if any argument can be negated by any other paper? And secondly, not all papers are the same. So the examples that were given were uh, Kirshner, Sweller, Clark, and a study by Schwartz and Martin. And, and so basically the argument was, if I play Kirshner, Sweller, Clark, then they can play Schwartz and Martin, and we're all back to square one because they show opposite things. But the Schwartz and Martin study, which I think is referring to Schwartz and Martin 2004, um, varied more than one thing at a time uh, in the experimental me uh, method. So things are not in entirely equivalent, and we have to have a filter. We have to say, actually, so you can't, not all evidence is the same. Just because you've generated some evidence over here of a type, of a sort in your uh, education faculty, doesn't mean it's the direct equivalent of something, particularly if the, the other thing has been carried out in a more rigorous way. I don't know if have you had any thoughts on that. Uh, well, in, in medicine, they're quite... You know, you have a drug A and drug B, and you give drug A to a group of people, and you give drug B to a group of people, and you're under some double-blind, randomized experiment, and you usually get a kind of, some kind of truth comes out. Yeah. <laughs> Education doesn't work like that, does it? Well, it should do, but it doesn't. Well, so, yes, you can always find a counter-argument, but you've got to have, you've got to, Look at those. I mean, the answer is looking at studies themselves. See what age, who were they, etc., like that. Problem solving works for bright kids. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you have a certain amount of knowledge, you're able to solve problems and learn from them. It's a natural thing to do. But it's based on, you know, a knowledge base. And, you know, in terms of, Evidence A versus evidence B. You just got to look at the, look at them and see, you know, how, you know, what were the conditions, who were the people, and, you know, what was the topic, all those things.
whether it was properly controlled, which you wouldn't think you'd have to ask, but you do. Yes. Yep. Um, final, I mean, question yes. From, final question from me, Paul. Um, yeah. It's been great having you on. I've really enjoyed this. And maybe at some point in the future, uh, you might be able to see, because you've got a vast body of research that we've only just touched on. Um, so maybe we could talk again. But a final question for now. So you, you've reflected on the fact that, say, in the 90s, people were trying to introduce project-based learning and then it went away and then it comes back. And I think we're all interested in how do we break this endless cycle of going round and round and, and trying things out that have, we know have failed in the past. Um, what would your, and it's a big question, and you might not have all the answers, but what, what are your suggestions for how mm. we might sort of break out of this? Well, the problem, as I was alluding to earlier, the problem is who conducts these reviews? If we go back to that, it's an example, go back time, what the problem is, <laughs> yeah. maybe come up with an idea of a solution. And I come when we had this email exchange. I commented on this, right? I mean, it's kind of like uh, in that Gonski two re review, you and John Sweller put through a very well. John was a was a bit more brief, but you put through a very good argument of what was wrong with you know various things, and that's that was ignored. Mm. Yeah. What the Gonski review did, and which. Other reviews, and they actually put on the web every response, and I went through every one, reading them. And yours was the only one that really made a lot of sense because it was saying, "Well, there's a lot of things wrong." <laughs> yeah, but that had no impact whatsoever. It was totally ignored as far as I can make out. And so, with this present now, the syllabus has gone out there, and I mean, like. We're complaining about the, the maths ones, right? Yeah. Uh, some of the others are worse by the yeah. sounds of things. But I won't go into that. And I haven't bothered doing a response to these because I know anything I say will be ignored. And you probably put in a response. <laughs> yeah. A little line saying, well, you don't agree with, you know, problem solving, but well, everybody else does. Yeah. <laughs> if you're lucky. Uh, the pressure has to come from what's going on now, from the press, from the, the real mathematicians. Yeah. <laughs> the real scientists. Yes, inquiry learning. And this is, the, this is the terrible mistake, is that, yes, scientists inquire. And that, right, mass people solve problems. They solve huge problems. Therefore, don't we have to give kids... You know, isn't doesn't this have to be the central way that kids learn problem solving, inquiry learning? Well, it is once you've mastered a certain amount of basic skills and knowledge. Yeah. You know, expertise takes, you know, this idea of expertise takes 10 years, you know. So so the, I, I I think the yeah, so I think the pressure has to come from outside these reviews. And, okay. And and yes, the teachers, the teachers' views have to be respected. Of course, they do. But it, but it, but it's usually the night noisy minority that gets through their arguments at times. But uh, you know, how many people actually respond to this? How many teachers are there? I mean, you know, it's a it's a fraction. 
So there's something wrong with the process. I think that the, the pro, the, even before these reviews are released to the public, I think they have to be you know, looked at by well-credentialed people who might come up with a counter-argument why some of these ideas. So I, I think some of these stuff should be uh, filtered out before it even goes to general, the general public or the a red team to, to, to have a look at everything that's wrong with the report before it can be published. Yeah, and, and also, you know, where's, where is the real evidence? I mean, they talk about evidence and the evidence they use is, is not evidence. It, it's, it's just a few people's opinions. Well, the evidence yeah. of the problem solving in the, uh, uh, in the maths curriculum is that Singapore does better than us um, at uh, maths on PISA and they have an emphasis on problem solving. Um, so that's the evidence. That's why we should have an evidence, uh, an emphasis on problem solving, which obviously is not a very valid argument. Well, no, because they have a completely different culture to learning. Yeah, they have a tutorial system which is you know, extra school. <laughs> yeah, so there are a lot of a lot of factors. They also master their times tables in year two and three, and throughout the curriculum, it talks about what they need to be able to do without a calculator, which ours doesn't. If you like another little story, right? Go on. I was on the, uh, 20 years ago, I was on the K26 uh, New South Wales Mass Curriculum Committee. And we had discussions about whether the 11 or 12 times table should be in the syllabus, K-6. And if you think about the 11 times table, it's not exactly hard. 11, no. 22, 33, 44. There's a pattern there. And yeah. mass is all about pattern. And 12 times table, well, if you ever, people moan about mass doesn't have real life applications. Well, it, well, it doesn't for most people's lives other than basic, basic finance and probability, if you want to chuck that in, yeah. and measurement. Huh? Well, there are 12 months of the year there are 12 astrological signs there are 12 disciples there are <laughs> yeah 12 eggs in a dozen not yeah. a baker's dozen of course so i mean I, I could not believe people were arguing against putting the 11 and 12 times table in yeah so no wonder linear equation is going to get bumped to your eight or your nine or maybe just give everyone a calculator <laughs> Well, yeah, that's kind of the idea. My argument has always been that we should we should go up to twelve because of all that, because three hundred and sixty degrees in a in a, a circle and twenty four hours in a day and all that. But given that we've gone all the way up to twelve, why not just go up to thirteen? Because thirteen is a prime number. And I mean, uh, and this comes back to the importance of conceptual knowledge: is, is that multiplication is, is addition. Yeah. My mother, when I was about seven, taught me that multiplication is addition, and I could do that. I could do the seventeen times table in my head. When yeah. I was about eight, yeah, because it was just addition. Okay, yeah. so I may have had a bit of mathematical bent, yeah. so to speak, but but that's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> so now the system's wrong. You know, giving reviews to people like Gonski and ACR, and I mean. I've met Gonski, he's a lovely bloke. He's really interested in education. I, I think he's a fabulous guy, but you know, he's not an educational researcher, but he's a, you know, he's a head figure, figurehead. 
So, but there's something wrong with the system. It, it's just not working the way, way it's going. And there has to be greater critiques of what goes on to begin with. I mean, after first draft of a green paper or white or green paper or something should be critiqued by people who, you know, from all sides, so to speak. First. I, think that's, I think that's a good idea. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time um, to uh, be on this podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I hope to talk to you. And sorry about all the all the problems, the technical issues and, and all that sort of stuff. And hopefully I'll talk to you again. Yes, yes, that would be a great pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Cheers, Paul. Yeah.